Amen. Amen. Guys, have a seat. Vert on a Tuesday. We're in the upside down. Things are getting wonky. This is crazy. Way to stick with us. Um, man, truly, we do have a very real enemy that wants to destroy you. And if he can't destroy you, he'll discourage you. And if he can't discourage you, he'll distract you. Uh, I'm not a guy who believes the devil's in the wires, but apparently tonight the devil's in the wires. He does not want us to have normal slides and things like that. But anyway, my name is Miles. I'm so glad you're here, guys. Uh, I grew up going to Rhode Island every single summer. And Rhode Island, for those of you who do not know, is a state in the United States of America. It's located in the northeast part of the country, uh, right next to Connecticut and Massachusetts. Again, there's other states in Texas. It's okay than Texas in this place, but a little geography for you, not the point. Growing up, we would go to Rhode Island every single summer. We'd go to the same beach house over the 4th of July weekend, and I had one goal every single year. As I was five, six, seven years old, my one goal was to dig the deepest hole in the history of human existence. That that was my mission. I took my pail and I took my... (laughs) Thanks, man. That was my goal. (laughs) I took my shovel and I took my pail and that was my one goal as a five, six, seven-year-old every single summer. I remember the first summer, I had no idea what I was doing. I started digging my hole a little too close to the ocean, to the waves. You know, I was five, okay? Cut me some slack. The waves would come in and they'd just absolutely destroy my hole. I'd stop digging a hole and I'd make mud pies. So I go to kindergarten and I'm like, you know what? I'm a little bit smarter. I'm more prepared for Rhode Island next summer. So I know my ABCs. I can sing them for you. Uh, but I don't know what that helps me teach, uh, learn how to dig a hole, but I'm prepared. I'm more prepared. So I go to Rhode Island again, 4th of July weekend, and I am prepared. I have my shovel and I have my pail and I'm ready to dig the deepest hole in the history of human existence. Except this time my shovel breaks and I'm like, okay, you know what? This is not going well, but you know what? First grade is going to teach me how to do some long division or something, maybe multiplication. I don't know what I learned in first grade. Actually, I can't remember. But I'm like, now I am ready. I am now six, seven years old and I am going back to Rhode Island with my family, 4th of July weekend, and I am determined. This is the year that I'm going to dig the deepest hole in the history of human existence. But I'm gonna go all the way to China this year. Well, this summer, there was actually a buzz around the summer. There was like a lot of murmuring and a lot going on. People were really excited because they heard that someone was digging a really deep deep hole. And I'm like, guys, I haven't started yet, but you're right. You should be excited. I'm about to dig the deepest hole in the history of human existence with my shovel and with my pail. And I start to realize that the entire beach isn't talking about me. They're talking about another guy. And I'm like, who the heck does this guy think he is? That was my thing. I've been doing this for three years. So I'm like curious now and a little frustrated because I got to find out who this joker is thinking that he can dig the deepest hole in the history of human existence. So I go on a little tour and sure enough, there's a giant crowd of people all around this one dude. And this dude was not just digging a deep hole. He was like an actual sand sculpture artist. So he had like an entire castle made for his family. And he dug this giant trench, this moat, and he put like couches in it. So his family could just sit and chill. And not only that, this moat was amazing because it, come, it came with the water so that it could, the waves would come in and cool people's feet off. And I was like, this dude is legit. So I start figuring out how does he dig the deepest hole in the history of human existence because I need to know what this guy's doing. And he had different equipment. He had like a real shovel and he had like Home Depot buckets. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense that he was able to dig a deeper hole than I was. 
And the reason I tell you that and the reason I start there is because that guy was prepared to dig a deep hole. I merely wanted to. You see, tonight we're talking about digging deep friendships. Digging deep, meaningful, lasting relationships here in college. Because we're in a series, right? The best four years that we truly believe that your college years matter, that they are going to have an impact on who you're becoming. That that is truly what your college years are about. It's who you're becoming, not exactly about what you're doing. And the people you choose to spend your time with and do life with are gonna have a huge impact on who you're becoming. And the reason we would take an entire week of our series to talk about friendships is because we are actually the loneliest generation in the history of the world. Now, it's crazy because we're actually the most connected generation in the history of the world, and yet we're actually yet the, the loneliest. Before the pandemic, three out of five people would say that they were lonely. That's before the pandemic. I can only imagine that number's gone up. A recent study on Gen Z, which is you guys in the room, would say that 74% of Gen Zers would say that they are lonely. That's a really big number, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, like three out of four. And that makes sense because scripture even tells us that. Scripture tells us in Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, the, why that's important is because we've allowed our loneliness to redefine our friendship. We've allowed our loneliness to redefine our friendship because I truly believe that you can isolate yourself not from people just because of proximity, right? You don't just remove yourself from people physically, but you can remove yourself from people. You can isolate yourself from people with your thoughts and your emotions and your feelings. That you can have a roommate and talk to them 0% of the time that you could literally live with someone and know nothing about them. That you could have a Snapchat streak with someone for a thousand days and yet not talk about anything meaningful. That you could talk to someone every single day and never go deep. So tonight we're gonna talk about the topic of friendship and deep, meaningful relationships. And we're gonna look at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and we're going to learn three things on how we can dig deep relationships while in college. Let's look at the passage tonight, Hebrews 10, 19 to to 25, says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. Just some context around this one passage, okay? 
It's always a good Bible study tool to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Begins with therefore, brothers. You always want to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And that passage is talking and starting to talk about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. But this is an actually a really well-known passage on community. So t- verses 24 and 25, that's a very popular one. Like a lot of people will go to that. You'll probably hear that one a lot while you're here at Baylor. But your Bible is littered with verses on community. Proverbs 18.1, Proverbs 17.17, 17, Proverbs 27.17, Genesis 1, Hebrews 3, 12 to 14, Acts 2, 42. There are so many verses on community. This is a main one. And the reason there are so many verses on community is because your Bible is a book on community. You see, in Genesis 1, we have a God who is a communal God and he creates communal creatures. God exists in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For all of eternity, he has existed in community, modeled it perfectly for us. And unity, equality, and distinction perfectly. He is an example. God, the Godhead, Trinity, is an example of community. And that God creates communal beings, communal creatures. When he creates Adam, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And he creates Eve to be his helper. So already in Genesis 1, we see that you were made, you and I were made to live in the context of biblical community, to pursue God with other people. And we see that carried out through our entire Bible. So in the New Testament, which is the second half of your Bible, there are over 90 one another's in scripture. That just means pray for one another, confess to one another. In this passage, it says, consider how to stir up one another. There are over 90 of those in your New Testament. This is the only time it's mentioned in Hebrews. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there were three let us in this passage. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. Which that is all plural language. That's not let me consider, let me draw near, let me hold fast. That doesn't make sense for the believer. The early church would have never even understood that concept of trying to pursue Jesus alone or live in community by yourself. That doesn't make sense. So already notice there is communal plural language that we were made to live in community. So let's jump into point one. Draw near through vulnerability. Point number one, draw near through vulnerability. Let's look back at the text. In verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Right, remember I said, what is the therefore, therefore? If you just back up, Earlier in chapter 10, the title of the chapter is Christ's sufficient work. What is his sufficient work? It's that his work on the cross is sufficient for your sin. 
this as sufficient payment to pay for your sin. That it covers, the blood of Jesus, Jesus covers you and makes you clean. It restores you. It makes you right in relationship with God once again. You now are a new creation. That because of the blood of Jesus, you can be washed clean. And what does that do? It gives you a new family. You are now a part of the house of God. You have brothers and sisters to do life with. That is what you are saved into. So what we're saying in the family of God is that, hey, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I need help. There's nothing that I can do on my own to earn or deserve salvation. It is a free gift given by Jesus' sacrifice and payment on the cross. And now once you are a member of his family, you are saying the same exact thing. Hey, I am a sinner and I need help. I am not perfect because I believe in Jesus. I'm still gonna struggle. There's still gonna be temptation. I will still need someone to help me up. So you are just holding fast to your confession. You're holding fast to the one who is faithful to keep his promises. And what is our hope? What is the thing that we're holding fast to? That Jesus Christ forgives sin and cleanses us from sin. That is what we're holding fast to. So the author of Hebrews here is telling us in this first chunk of scripture to live vulnerably and authentically with other people. He's begging us, telling us to live authentically and vulnerably with other people. You see, it's like, man, why would you pretend to be perfect? Like stop pretending to say, or, or, or stop saying you don't have sin or that you don't struggle. To admit that you're a believer or a Christian is to admit that you have sin and that you struggle. So let's just, keep holding fast to that confession that we have sin and need someone to pay for that penalty. Right? What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that you have to be a well. <laughs> you have to dig the well. I was doing research on wells. Maybe you've gone on mission trips and have supported uh, wells for towns or maybe been a part of digging one, or maybe your house has one, but I was just fascinated how they work. And I was reading one article and it just was saying that the typical death depth of a residential well ranges from 100 feet to 800 feet deep. Some wells are even 1,000 feet deep, feet or deeper. And the article then said, the deeper a well is, the better the water quality. The deeper a well is, the deeper, the better the water quality. You see, if you want to have a quality relationship, if you want to have a healthy relationship, you've got to go deep. If you want to have healthy relationships, you have to share vulnerably with other people. You can't be shallow. If you want to go from friend to family, you've got to share struggles, hardships, things that are going on in your life. 
If you want healthy, deep, meaningful relationships, you have to share vulnerably. And I'm not standing here saying like, hey, that's really easy. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that going deep and sharing and confessing sin is easy. Like, no, it's like really, really hard. Like that is hard work. That takes a lot of trust and a lot of faith, but I'm telling you, it is worth it and it is good and it is right. If you want deep, meaningful relationships, you have to share vulnerably. I remember the first community group. Oh my gosh, I tripped over that wire. Did anyone see that? No, <laughs> praise God. Yeah, I know now he just draws attention to it anyway. The first community group that I had post-college um, Man, I was part of three life groups in college. Each year they were different. Every week they were different. It was like, what is going on? But my first one post-college was a group of guys that I had never met. Two of them, I would have been like, okay, we could be homies. But they were committed and they showed up every week and they confessed a lot of sin. Like every week they confessed sin. And you might be like, that sounds like a bad group, Miles. You should probably see yourself out the door on that one. And, I'm, and I wanna tell you that that was the healthiest group I've ever been a part of. It's because this group of guys, they knew that confession was an act of worship. They knew that confession was just an opportunity to magnify the grace of Jesus Christ. That they were just stepping in into an opportunity to be like, Christ has forgiven me of this. I don't have to carry sin and shame anymore Christ carried it on the cross. It stays there. And every single week, these guys would confess, confess, confess. And then it would start to get to me and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've never confessed sin in my entire life. And I would start to sweat a little bit. I'm like, bro, I, my parents got divorced in the sixth grade. I didn't tell anyone for two years. I went to school every day. Nobody knew, like not even my best friends. Like I was like, you're telling me I gotta like talk about my sin right now? Like all I've ever shared in college was that I'm struggling or that I stumbled or that I fell. And you want me to share like real stuff? I remember I was sitting there. I was like death gripping my chair. I'm literally on the verge of tears. I'm like, this is crazy. This dude just confessed to same-sex attraction. This bro confessed to pornography. This dude confessed to all this other stuff. And I'm like, what is going on? They're actually sharing things. And then it finally gets to me. I confess for the first time in my life, true confession, that I was struggling with a 10-year-long pornography addiction and that I had never done anything besides, ah, I'm struggling this week. That was the first time I truly, authentically, vulnerably lived in the light with those guys and it was because they led out first in vulnerability. And you know what those guys did? And they loved me. And they prayed for me. James 5.16 says, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You see, there, there's a pathway to healing and confession is the start of the pathway. Confession is the beginning of the healing that you are looking for. So whatever you are holding onto, whatever you are struggling with right now, you don't have to carry that anymore. You don't have to struggle with that anymore. You can let others in and begin the process of healing. But it starts with vulnerability. 
Let's look at point number two. Point number two. Invest in each other's lives. Invest in each other's lives. Let's look back at the text. It says, and let us consider, underline that, how to stir up one another to love and good works. Underline that. Not neglecting to meet together. Underline, underline that. As is the habit of some. See, the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, consider. Right, there's intentionality there. That means, hey, I want to be thinking about these people that I'm doing life with. I want to think about these guys. I want to think about these girls. I want to consider their day-to-day, their week-to-week, what's upcoming on their schedule, the things that they're going through, the things that are upcoming, the things that are hard. I want to consider them, and I want to stir them up to love and good works. I want to spur them on to continue to choose Jesus and pursue him and choose him. So how can I come alongside Cooper or Carter or Cam right now today? What can I do to come alongside these guys and to be a part of their lives, to invest in them? And then it says not to neglect, to meet together. Right, there's, we gotta be committed to these people. We gotta be vulnerable with them and we gotta be committed to them. It's not that I want to be a part of your life for an hour of a week. It's I wanna be a part of your life all of your life for all of life. As long as you are breathing oxygen, I will be on your team. I will be with you. I will support you. I will encourage you. I will be there. Why? Because I'm committed to you. I'm committed to your sanctification. I'm committed to you looking more like Christ. So I'm gonna invest in your life. This is important. And it's not just an hour a week on a Sunday or a Wednesday so I can check a box and say that I did it. It's that I need help following Jesus. And I need, and I wanna be as committed to you as I pray you would be committed to me. We gotta invest in each other's lives. I was uh, talking to a guy in Houston a couple weeks ago. I grabbed coffee with him and I was just asking him about this question. I said, hey, how do you think about community? How do you practice this in your life? And he said, Miles, I have guys, I have people in my life who protect me and people to propel me. I have people to protect me and people to propel propel me. What are we being protected from? We're being protected from our flesh, the world, and the enemy. We need protection from those things. And we need to be propelled toward Christ, the cross, and sanctification. One of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy 2, 22. And it just says, flee immorality, pursue righteousness, faith, hope, and love, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Hey, there are three ways in which he encourages you to run. To flee immorality. Flee the things of the world that distract you and are seeking to destroy you and take life from you. Run as hard, as hard away from those things as you possibly can and pursue righteousness and faith and hope and do it with people who want the same. You see, that piece is so important because these people need to know what you're trying to flee from to help you flee from it and help you pursue the things you were called to pursue, the things you were made to pursue. So we gotta know about people's lives. We need to be invested in them. 
And you can't just do that an hour a week. That looks like doing life together. Right, that might be like, hey, I'm going to Pinewood to study. Would you wanna come with me? It might be like, hey, I've gotta run a couple errands after church. Why don't we just carpool? It might be like, hey, do you wanna go to the football game this Saturday? And you're like, ah, we're a basketball school. Too soon, too soon. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, And if you went to the game, you made a memory, so now you know, you know, it's like, come on. But truly, like, to invest in each other's lives is to do life together, to be a part of each other's lives. And if you start digging deep now, if you start investing in these relationships now, you're going to find your groomsmen's, your groomsmen and your bridesmaids. Like, you're going to find people and relationships that you'll do life with for the rest of life. That people here in this room potentially could be standing with you on some of your very best days. And they could also be the ones who are comforting you on the hardest days of your life. My favorite thing I got to do this summer was I got to officiate one of my college roommate's wedding. A guy I've known for eight years now. I got to stand in front of him as he's waiting for his bride to walk down those doors walk down the aisle, opens the doors. He's bawling, I'm bawling. This is one of the most special and sweet days of his life and my life. I'm like, man, I'm just glad that I get to be here. And to be a part of it is really, really sweet. And to watch you weep, man, it's just so fun to champion you and be for your marriage. And I'm gonna get to do that for the rest of my days. The hardest day of my summer, the worst part of my summer, was when one of my groomsmen called me to confess to an affair. One of my best friends, a guy that was standing next to me on my wedding day, a man I never thought would do anything like that, would never walk out on his wife or his son, is now acting a fool. And I get to put my arm around him and love him and tell him he's an idiot. And to help him pursue reconciliation. And those relationships started right now. They started because I said, hey, I I care about you and I wanna be a part of your life all of your life, the hard parts, the messy parts, the the gross parts, the sinful parts, like that's what it's all about. That's what it's for is to be a part of your life, to invest deeply, not just in the fun things, not just in football games or FIFA or pickleball, but the real stuff, the hard stuff. I pray all the time that the Lord would mercifully expose me of my sin. I pray that there would never be a day where I'd be in my buddy's shoes. But if I were, I pray that he would respond in the similar way, that he would show up, that the ministry of presence would be real, that he would just seek to love me and point me back to Christ, to propel me back to the cross.
and to remind me of grace and for the forgiveness of my sins. Let's look at point number three. Point number three, give the gift of encouragement. Give the gift of encouragement. Verse 25 says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we see right here, what the author of Hebrews is simply telling us is that encouragement is a gift. Encouragement is a gift. Everybody wants to be encouraged. Everybody wants to be around an encouraging person. Last week, I just confessed to my community group. I was like, man, I'm just not feeling good enough. I don't feel like I should be doing what I'm doing. Like, I don't think that I think there's more people or people more talented than me, better than me. Like, even right now, I'm like, am I good enough? And I'm like, just confessing this. And they send me quick texts back and forth, just reminding me of truth, encouraging me. And I'm like, gosh, like, I need this. I need people to give me the gift of encouragement and not just be isolated in my thoughts and trapped with the insecurities, anxieties in my mind. I need them to remind me of truth and what is true. And then what he's also saying is that you need to be a truth teller, that you wanna be encouraging, you wanna encourage other people, you want encouraging people around you, but you also need to surround yourself with truth tellers and you need to be a truth teller. You can't just say nice things or things that people want to hear, right? It says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near is Jesus coming back. He's coming back. It's promised in scripture. He said that he would. And we want to be ready when he's here. And we don't know the day or the hour or when that's going to be. But if we say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, then we should be following Jesus. And I want people around me to tell me, hey, Miles, you don't look like Christ right now. You said you want to follow Jesus, but you really haven't been following Jesus. So like, what can we do to get you back to following him? Because he's coming back. And I'm going to have to give an account for the way in which I stewarded my life and my discipleship. So I want people around me to be truth tellers, not just encouraging people, but I need encouragement and I need truth. We have a sermon prep team that meets every week to talk about the text, talk about the topic, talk, talk about the subject. And while we were meeting this week, one of my buddies just said, hey, have you ever heard of the story of Odysseus and the sirens? And I'm like, nope, not at all. Maybe some of you read in English, never heard that name before in my entire life. It's probably because I got C's in English in high school, <laughs> but... He was telling me about the story of Odysseus and the sirens, which apparently Odysseus was a captain of a ship. And they're going on a journey and he tells his crew, hey, these, there are sirens, which I don't know what sirens really are. I think they're mermaids or angels or something that sing. But apparently he's like, hey, there are these sirens that are upcoming. And these sirens, they're gonna sing. And when they sing, you're gonna wanna do some crazy stuff. Like you're gonna wanna jump ship and leave everything. You're gonna to wanna to leave the mission that we're on. So what you need to do is you need to plug your ears. You need to put wax or cotton in your ears so you can't hear their singing because they're gonna manipulate you and lie to you and lead you to death and destruction. And Odysseus 
wanting to do the impossible thing, wanting to live alone. He says, hey, tie me to the mast and don't put anything in my ears because I wanna do this thing by myself and see if I can overcome this challenge. So sure enough, his crew does what he says. They tie him to the mast and they get closer and closer to these sirens and they begin to hear the singing and this crew, they're fine because they put their things in their ears and they can drown out the lies. But Odysseus, now his mind is going crazy and he's starting to believe the lies. And he says, let me out like I'm fine now. Like it's okay, I'm, I'm not gonna listen to them. I'm not gonna head toward destruction. I promise you, just let me out, I'm okay. And his crew, he surrounded himself with encouraging people, with people who were truth tellers. And they say, Odysseus, hold fast to the mast. Hold fast to the mass, Odysseus. Hold fast to the mass. Do not listen to them. Drown them out. Do not head towards destruction. And as good friends, they don't untie him. And as I was thinking about that story, I just thought of Jesus. Jesus doesn't hold fast to a mass, but he holds fast to a cross. He doesn't come down because he wants to pay for our sins. And he wants to be a friend to sinners. So he pays the ultimate price, performs the ultimate act of a friend and lays down his life in your place so that you, summary we want to draw near through vulnerability we want to invest in each other's lives we want to give the gift of encouragement we want to d-i-g dig deep let me pray that we would Thank you for taking our place. Thank you for being a friend who would go to a cross, who would die for people who might not ever accept, who might not ever delight in the act of death and obedience to a cross. Jesus, you show us the perfect example of friendship. You show us what it means to be a friend. You show us what it looks like to be a friend. 
Father, we pray right now just in this space that we would search our own hearts, that we'd ask the question of how we can be better friends. And then Father, we also just sit with you and and ask and wonder and ponder if Jesus is our friend, if we truly believe in your death and resurrection, if we would confess that that is true and that we wanna follow you. Father, right now, we just would ask that your spirit would convict us of any sin we need to confess that's hindering us from following you. Father, we pray that you would put a name of someone on our life that we could encourage. Father, we pray that you'd give us wisdom and discernment on how to go deep with the people that you've put us around and put in our life. Father, would you move in our hearts? Would you convict us? Would you help us? We need you.